According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can turn to Matthew chapter 8 this morning as we get started. Matthew chapter 8, continuing in our Life of Christ series. Matthew chapter 8, 14 through 17. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to ask the Father to sanctify our thinking, preparing ourselves spiritually for His truth, shall we pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the opportunity that we have to assemble together this morning and receive instruction. Father, we thank You for this leaky building because, Father, it's a grace provision. It's paid for. It uh, meets our needs, and we thank you for it. We thank you, Father, for um, just for everything that you've supplied, all things necessary for life and godliness. We commit this time now into your hands, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are moving on this morning to event number six in the Galilean ministry of Jesus. If you are following along in our Harmony of the Gospel outline, we have completed the introduction to Jesus Christ, the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist, truths about John the Baptist, and the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So we are now in the fifth main section, the Galilean ministry, which is the longest section. It has uh, 56 uh, events in this section. It will be followed by the last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus, uh, Jesus' final week of work, uh, which is fairly long itself. The last Judean and Prean ministry has 42 events. The final week, the Passion Week, has 41 events. And then the series will conclude with a resurrection through the ascension, 13 final items in the life of Christ. And uh, by the time we finish the ascension, we may even take a few lessons beyond the harmony of the Gospels. And uh, because... Obviously, the ascension doesn't end the life of Christ. The life of Christ continues. He continues in session at the right hand of the Father as our advocate, as our intercessor. It will continue in prophetic studies in terms of the rapture event where he uh, himself descends with a shout with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And uh, it will move on and cover uh, second advent, uh, tribulational second advent and millennial activity. It will include the great white throne judgment. It will include the fullness of times. And then finally, you really want to know where the life of Christ uh, uh, ministry comes to a close. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So hold your finger at Matthew chapter 8 and just peek with me over for a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And um, verse 24, and we will observe the uh, final work assignment of Jesus Christ. It says, uh, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's verse 22. Uh, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ in his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. In other words, the father is not subject to the son. So when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So we look at verse 24, we look at verse 28, and we recognize that there is an event upcoming when Jesus Christ delivers the kingdom back to the Father. And uh, this is the culmination of the fullness of time. This then begins eternity future. And uh, we are uh, anxious for those things to take place. All right, rebooting didn't do a thing, so uh, if anything, it just made it worse. All right, well, we'll get Cliff to fix that tonight. As long as we can do this, we should be okay. All right, that appears to be better. Peter's mother-in-law healed, event number six in the Galilean ministry. This one, as well as number seven and number eight, kind of come very rapidly. At least, uh, well, at least this one and number seven. The first preaching tour of Galilee, which follows immediately in Mark chapter one and follows immediately in Luke chapter four. The order is a little bit different in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're okay with that. We discussed uh, weeks ago when we were first describing the nature of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that quite often we will find things out of order in Matthew, whereas we will tend to find them in a better order in both Mark and Luke. Although it is interesting that some of what we've dealt with already at this point in uh, the Gospel of Luke has been out of order. The, uh, the Fishers of Men incident, for example, uh, Luke doesn't have a very good order on that because that material comes in Luke 5, and yet we're still backing up a little bit here to Luke 4. So some of the order is a little bit different, and you're going to want to use your harmony as a scorecard to keep track of not only where we are in the overall study, but where we are in each particular gospel. Right now at the moment, we're actually in the midst of a huge gap in between John 4 and John 5, and we're okay with that. Uh, because, remember, the Gospel of John is not all that worked up about the Galilean ministry, not worked up about miracles and a lot of other things. The Gospel of John is giving us uh, an entirely different picture from the Synoptic Gospels. So we're not surprised that something here with the healing of Peter's mother-in-law is covered in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John doesn't touch it. All right? Let's just read uh, Matthew 8, 14 through 17. When Jesus came into Peter's home... He saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, and that's, that's it for uh, Matthew, by the way. Um, well, I guess we can go into the, uh, the aftermath of this with the, the healing of these others. Um, when evening came, they brought uh, to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. And that's it. That's a short and sweet uh, passage for what we're going to deal with here this morning. Let's read Mark and Luke to go with it. They're all fairly similar. Some vocabulary differences. Mark chapter 1, 29 through 34. 
And uh, as I mentioned, in the Matthew account, it's a little bit out of order, coming as it is. Matthew doesn't even record the, this incident until chapter 8, when, for the most part, we're still back in chapter 4 of Matthew. Mark, though, has it in, a, in an excellent order because it follows the um, teaching in the synagogue where he casts out the demon, where all the crowds are amazed, and, uh, and then it takes you into Peter's home on that same day. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Say, just like when you get out of church, what do you want to do? Well, you want to go home and you want to eat, right? <laughs> well, they've left the synagogue, not only with the teaching that took place there, but uh, with casting out a demon and other things taking place. And so they get home from church, they get home from synagogue, and uh, they want to eat. Well, the problem, though, is that Peter's mother-in-law is sick, and uh, Peter's not much of a cook. <laughs> All right. Maybe I'm embellishing on the story here a little bit, okay? Because we don't really know about Mrs. Peter, for example. Um, and we don't even know the name of Peter's mother-in-law. But they get home from church, and she has this fever. In fact, the indication is that it kept her from the synagogue, that she stayed home because of that. So immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand, and the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. See, it's important that the sun had set because... This was the Sabbath day. He'd gone into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they're home now uh, for Sabbath. But until the sun sets, the Jews can't go carrying people. They can't, you know, it's against the law to be carrying your, your pallet or to carry a sick person and so forth. They, they don't want to brush with the Pharisees there. They will tell them it's not lawful to be carrying these sick people to somebody's house on the Sabbath day. But as soon as that sun goes down, boy, let me tell you, the whole town shows up outside the door. They're lying in the streets. Mark really gives the most vivid description. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city was gathered at the door. <laughs> all right? So you can imagine on the front porch there, and they're ringing the doorbell or, you know, dinging that or knocking, and the front porch is packed, and down the steps and down the walk and down the street, and they're all gathered around the house. Why? Well... Because he cast out that demon in the synagogue earlier in the day. And everybody saw that and they went home and, and news starts spreading. And, and now as soon as the sun's down, boom, here they are. As I say, Mark, Mark, the Gospel of Mark presents Christ as the servant and it really has a servant's eye for things. And uh, Mark typically as a servant would be spotting details like this. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. Now, a couple of them actually got to utter some things. Mark doesn't record it, but Luke does. So we've read two of the accounts. Let's go to the third one. Luke 4, 38 through 41. Luke 4, 38 through 41. I was going to get some Vibronic software ready here too and I failed to do that this morning Luke 4 um, the order on this is 
is okay because it follows the the uh, synagogue on the Sabbath day and the demoniac in verse uh, 37. Notice the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. And by nightfall, obviously, then the crowds are going to start gathering around, which uh, Mark recorded and which Luke records here in verse 40. But verse 38, then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. Luke uses a more technical vocabulary, which you would expect coming from a physician. And he describes it not just as a normal fever, but he describes it as a high fever. And I'll give you some of the, uh, some of the culture on it here in a moment. And uh, they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her. And she immediately got up. He uses a term here for almost for resurrection. He uses it for uh, her in the process of getting out of bed. And it almost seems like had he not done this, that she would have needed resurrection. That, she, that this fever was of the sort that uh, she would have physically died. So standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. While the sun was setting, all those who who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and laying his hands on each of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God, but rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. All right, so now we've covered all three of the, uh, the uh, texts that cover this narrative. We can get our points of study on it. First of all, in the geographic context, we begin with Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew shared a home in Capernaum. Mark chapter 1 and verse 29. Some of these are the details that are appropriate to the culture of the day that help us to understand, especially when um, the culture is a little bit different than what we would expect in our day. We don't have the clan uh, orientation of extended family groupings such as they shared in the ancient world and such as still takes place in uh, in uh, modern times in different parts of the world. Uh, we have this concept of the family unit being the father and the mother and the children and then when the children uh, are of age then they leave home and they establish their own residence, their own uh, household, their own family unit. See, um, We wouldn't expect brothers to uh, occupy the uh, the same residence we would expect especially if they're married that they would be in their own homes see you know there's uh there's a a picket residence and a pearson residency and that's the way it works there's a two bolander residences see matt doesn't live with us he has his own his own home and circumstances there well here's peter and andrew two brothers they are adult sons and we don't know andrew's marital status but we know that peter's married and we know that the mother-in-law is here in the home say there's no reference to a father-in-law it might be that she's widowed and they brought her in almost like uh, what john and kim have done they've got three mothers-in-law <laughs> in in their home as uh, as it turns out no they don't just two just two i'm, I'm confused here for the moment in any event, um, we do know because of this that Peter was married. So, so much for the first pope. <laughs> All right. Peter was married, as were most of the apostles. All right. The only way you can have a mother-in-law is to get married. 
as were most of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 9.5. In fact, I think it's extraordinary. I think 1 Corinthians 9.5, if you read it, means that all of the apostles were married with the exception of Paul and Barnabas. That Paul and Barnabas were the exception rather than the rule. All right, so holding my finger here. Actually, I'm not going to hold my finger here. I'm going to, primarily I'm going to use Mark as the text this morning. But just peeking at 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5. Everything we're doing in our 1 Corinthians series is headed towards this. From chapter 7 to chapter 8 to chapter 9. We've got the question on celibacy versus marriage that we dealt with at some length in chapter 7. We've got the issues of uh, freedom. Liberty in verse 8, can you eat meat sacrificed to idols or not? See, and all of that is leading us into the application of verse 9. I'm sorry, of chapter 9. And he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? And Paul is going to make personal application of everything in terms of liberty and love that he taught in chapter 8. He then uses himself as the example and begins to lay it out for the Corinthians to judge for themselves. So he says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? That's uh, a requirement to be an apostle. You have to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. Nobody today, obviously, is old enough to have seen the uh, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, Are you not my work in the Lord? If If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Say, they had they they were the evidence. They were the witnesses. Paul showed up in Corinth, uh, preached the gospel, saw a bunch of folks saved, got a church planted, trained a pastor, gave him a pastor. I mean, all the evidence for who was an apostle was laid out there for them to see. Obviously, Paul was an apostle. See, you know, it'd be like. Uh, uh, Austin Bible Church is the evidence of my pastor-teacher gift, see, because for 10 years, here's a body of believers that have been fed, the Word of God's been taught, they've been edified, believers have grown, Uh, some believers have gotten mad and stormed out, well, what better evidence? (laughs) What better evidence that here's a pastor-teacher using his gift, ministering the Word of God, see, is obviously not a, a... huckster or some kind of phony or some because those kind of guys don't make people mad and make them storm out they they flatter everybody to make the you know make the most amount of money they can see and so the scripture says this is the credential you don't need the you know the degree on the wall and the reference letters of reference and all the rest of the stuff now he says uh for you are the seal of my apostleship in the lord my defense to those who examine me is this Do we not have a right to eat and drink? See, when it comes to the liberties, they loved having all kinds of liberties, but they expected that, you know, Paul wasn't entitled to any. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? Now, Paul was single, probably divorced or widowed. At some point, he must have been married prior to this, or he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have had a vote on the Sanhedrin. And he says he had a vote. So he must have been married previously, but whether he's now divorced or widowed, we don't know. But he says he has a right to get married again. You know, if the Lord was to bring some woman in his in his life, you know, he could. He but he went on to defend in chapter seven. He's content as a single man, and that's the way he's going to be. But he has the right to get married. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? See, that's the thing. If she's a believer, I can marry her. 
If she's an unbeliever, though, of course, can't. That's the stipulation. You cannot be unequally yoked. And then he says, even as the rest of the apostles. That's why I think all of them were married. I think Peter, Andrew, James, and John, all of them were married at some point. Now, John, maybe not immediately because he was probably still a teenager during the gospel events. But at some point, he got married. Even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord, Jude and James, we know four of them by name, and I believe they were also called as apostles like Paul was after the resurrection. The brothers of the Lord and Cephas, there's, there's Peter. Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? See, he singles out him and Barnabas. And I believe that that's by singling out just the two of them, that, that, and Corinth was familiar with them because these two apostles were, were well known as the unmarried bachelors that they were. And probably Barnabas was widowed himself. See, and why he just sold off all that land in Cyprus and gave it to the church, didn't need it anymore. Was not, wasn't married any longer, wasn't raising a family any longer, was widowed or whatever, and just said, all right. Unloaded the property, gave it to the believers in Jerusalem. Do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Well, nobody. Nobody ever says, yeah, I love risking my life in battle, and I'll even pay myself to do it. Nobody does that. Or who plants a vineyard does not eat the fruit of it? There are no farmers out there that, that work hard, raise a crop, and then just give it all away. They're that's how they make their living. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. See, the, the ox is out there pulling the plow, turning the, the, the millstone or whatever he's doing. He's working. So you don't muzzle him. You, you go ahead and you leave his mouth free so that while he's working, he can go ahead and stick his head down there and snack. You know, he can eat while he's working. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? You think there's a spiritual point to this illustration? Yes, there is. Yes, for our sake it was written because the plowman ought to plow in hope, the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? See, and the point is, yes. As a minister of the word of God, Paul would expect that they would be motivated by grace, appreciative for the spiritual teaching they've received, and that they would offer a grace gift his direction. Say, it's only normal. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things that we would not we would cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And he just said, all right, forget it. You don't have the capacity to give, then there's no charge. Paul wouldn't take a dime from them until they could learn the principles of grace giving. And, uh, and that's the application of what chapter 8 is about. You may have liberty, but love vetoes that. See, love vetoes that. If your liberty is causing somebody else to stumble then you don't have that liberty. You don't exercise it. Love says, all right, I'm not exercising that. And Paul made that application in terms of the financial support because Corinth was too schismatic. They had all the divisions and half of them, you know, a quarter of them were serving him and a quarter of them were serving Peter and a quarter of them were serving Apollos. And, and, and Paul just said, all right, forget it. No charge for any of this. You don't have the grace capacity to give. Anyway, we have all that coming up in our First Corinthians series. The only thing I'm keying in on here is verse 5. Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife even as the rest of the apostles? And uh, Cephas is particularly singled out. And he's the one that has the mother-in-law in Mark chapter 1 and verse 30. 
So I can return back to Mark 1 now at this point. Peter's mother-in-law is the only apostolic family member in the Gospels. Peter's mother-in-law is the only apostolic family member in the Gospels. But as we said, I believe that all the apostles were married. It would have been normal for them to be married. And 1 Corinthians 9 says they were. All right. Verse 30. Simon's mother-in-law. The panthera, panthera in the Greek. P-E-N-T-H-E-R-A. Panthera. P-E-N-T-H-E-R-A. Panthera. It's a feminine ending. If, you, if it's pentheros with an O-S ending, it's masculine. It'd be father-in-law. I don't know. There appears to be a... Uh, a similarity in panthera to panther. And I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I don't know if there's any etymological tie between panthers and mothers-in-law. I've suspected such for years. I don't know. Certainly in my case, it doesn't apply. I have a wonderful mother-in-law. She's not a panther. Um... Let me pull something else up here, though. It is interesting. Let me show you some of the things you can do. Um, you can just right-click mother-in-law here. And if you're not sure what the Greek word is, you can say, okay, show me what the Greek word is. And then it highlights panthera for you there. And as far as panthera is concerned, I'm going to... Pull up one of my favorite lexicons here. I like uh, it's a couple of these I like. Let's go to that one. Panthera. Here we go. Mother-in-law. Six occurrences in the New Testament. Mainly this passage here. <laughs> All right. You can see it's uh, uh, references Simon Peter's mother-in-law in Mark 1:30. Uh, the parallel accounts of Matthew 8:14 and Luke 4:38. It also uh, occurs in Matthew 10.35 and in Luke 12.53, both of which are quoting the Old Testament. They're quoting Micah chapter 7 and verse 6, where uh, he's come to set a uh, mother-in-law against her daughter, a father-in-law against his, his son. And there's, there's family. Well, actually, wait a second. Why don't I just look at it? They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law, that's panthera, against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, that's panthera as well. So, anyway, we have a chance to look at that very quickly. Uh, that's panthera, is mother-in-law. The masculine form is pantheros, with an O-S ending, for father-in-law, just made it from a feminine to a masculine noun. And then, the verb pentheo, means to grieve, to lament, or to mourn. <laughs> Again, I don't know if that's connected. I don't know if in-laws are those that are grieving, lamenting, or mourning. In other words, the in-laws are disappointed in the spouse that their child ended up with. But there it is. I mean... You just can't get any plainer than that when you when you go from 
in, in subsequent articles in the dictionary, you go from panthera, mother-in-law, to pantheros, father-in-law, to pentheo, to grieve, lament, or mourn. Anyway, it may be connected, may not be connected. But this is what we're dealing with. And it's, it's really no big deal. They go home from church. Mother-in-law is sick. Jesus Christ says, no problem. All right? That's what we're talking about this morning. This is really an easy thing to teach. You probably teach it in 10 seconds and cut you loose for the day. Now, there is some doctrinal application, though, that we're going to want to learn in this event. Peter's mother-in-law suffered from a high fever and was unable to get out of bed. She suffered. And the word for suffer is used there. It was suffering. It was not just a cold. It was not just an inconvenience. All too often, 21st century American Christians get convinced that we're suffering for Jesus. You know what? We're not suffering. We're inconvenienced occasionally. But compared to those martyrs in other parts of the world, no, we're not suffering. Not in the slightest. Not even close. The judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be, uh, you know, an awful lot of believers up there from the 21st century. It's not going to be the American Christians that are at the head of the pack. <laughs> Those that were thought they were uh, rich and in need of nothing and didn't realize they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The Laodicea Christianity that we live in. But Peter's mother-in-law suffered, and it was legitimate suffering, from a high fever. That's the Luke account. Giving the medical terminology and giving the reality of it. Was unable to get out of bed. Matthew 8.14 made that clear. Not only was she in bed, but she couldn't get out of bed. And I think, given that the, the term for resurrection is used here, that when he lifted her up, that it really was near death at that moment, that when he restored her health, he was literally lifting her up. See... Certain things we want to recognize in terms of uh, what it is that believers go through. Now, is his mother-in-law a believer? We assume so. We don't know. It appears that if she wasn't saved before now, she's going to get saved here. <laughs> All right. Because what's the first thing she does when she gets up? She serves. Yeah, she serves. I think in all likelihood, Peter and Andrew, because they'd been disciples of John the Baptist before they became disciples of Christ, I think all the likelihood is is that, that their parents or in-laws were also believers, Old Testament believers looking forward to the coming Christ. See, Now, the, um, there's a lot here. In terms of, is, is all sickness demonic? No. Mark is making very clear that there are some that have demons, there are some who are sick, and not everybody who's sick is sick because of demons. Sometimes we're just sick because we're sick. We're sick because we're fallen bodies in a fallen world, and that happens. All right? It happens even to Christians. Christians get sick. Christians die. This is the, the nature of the fallen world in which we live. Now, Jesus rebuked the fever. He rebuked the fever, and it's the doctor telling us this. Luke 4:39. Jesus rebuked the fever, and she was healed. Rebuked the fever, and she was healed. Um, you know, what sort of things can you order around? You know, you, a rebuke is a verbal command. A rebuke is a verbal admonishment. You can rebuke a person. Suppose you could rebuke an animal, to whatever extent the animal is capable of understanding verbal communications. 
But here is a sickness, a fever being rebuked, uh, an inanimate thing, uh, 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 such as a fever. All right, It's not intelligent, but it's being rebuked. And she was healed. Epitomason is the verb to rebuke, and the object of the rebuke is the puritas here, the, whoops, the fever. I thought I had turned my little pointer on. I did. He didn't rebuke her. Not her fault. Not the mother-in-law's fault. He doesn't rebuke the mother-in-law. And he doesn't rebuke any kind of a demon. There are demons in this text, but it's only after the sun goes down and the city shows up. And they didn't show up because he healed the mother-in-law. That was something private. No, they didn't know about the mother-in-law. They knew about the synagogue during the day. They knew about the morning service at the synagogue that he cast out a demon there. And so as soon as the sun goes down, all of Capernaum shows up with their sick family members, their demoniacs and all the rest. This is a private healing. And I, I think we ought to consider the private nature of the healing of the mother-in-law and the public nature of the front porch ministry and realize as born-again believers in the church age, we have private matters to deal with, but we also have public matters to deal with. That we take care of our own first. That is, in our benevolence, in our ministry, in our support, in, in terms of, I've gotten probably ten phone calls in the last two weeks wanting help on rent or utilities and so forth. We've had people knocking on the glass doors, on the office door, going next door to the parsonage, looking for money. Say, I don't know what... If it's, it usually doesn't hit this hard until the holidays. And for whatever reason, it's hitting hard in August. Well, our primary ministry is here. But do we totally ignore the world around us? Because Jesus Christ did go to the door. And he did heal those. So... I think we want to examine both the private and the public aspect of this in its uh, proper setting. He rebuked the fever. He also rebuked demons, the winds and the sea, and his own disciples. Jesus Christ was a rebuking individual. He is the subject of epitomeo many times. Demons, we already saw in our previous episode in Mark one twenty-five, and often, often, Throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we find Jesus rebuking demons. And with the rebuke, the demons depart. But he also rebukes the winds and the sea in a very well-known miracle. In fact, it's recorded in all the synoptic gospels. Matthew 8.26, Mark 4.39, Luke 8.24. I'm in Mark, so I'll just stick with Mark. Mark 8, uh, 4, 39. <laughs> there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? <laughs> we are Apollumi perishing even though God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not Apollumi perish, but have eternal life. Anyway, they are terrified because they're Apollumi perishing and Jesus just doesn't care. Right? I mean, how often in our own prayer life do, do we think that? 
I have a health test, I have a marriage test, I have a financial test, I've got whatever else is going on and God just doesn't seem to care. Why aren't you answering these prayers? Do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind. And that's epitomeo and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. No big deal. Like casting out demons, no big deal. Mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever on the verge of death. No big deal. Circumstances and details of life. Rebuke it and move on. And uh, he said to them, why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? Not just you have little faith, you have none. That's so little, we're just going to call it zero at this point. How is it that you have no faith? And they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who is this then that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now, being able to rebuke something inanimate like wind, it's not a person, it's not a thing, not an intelligence, but it's being rebuked. Same thing with this fever. It's not a person, not a demon, not a being, not an animal, it's nothing with a mind or intelligence, but it's being rebuked. It's being rebuked. And then his own disciples, many, many times, Matthew 16, 20, Mark 8, 30, Luke 9, 21, and 55. I'll grab the Luke 9 one there because it covers both incidents. Luke 9. Now, Peter usually is on the end of these rebukes, but not always. It's, sometimes it's other ones. Um, this is very important, though, as a as a hinge. And um, we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of teaching on this event. It happened that while he was praying alone, Luke nine eighteen, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, "Who do the people say that I am?" And they answered and said, "John the Baptist." Others say Elijah. Others that uh, one of the prophets of old is risen again. And he said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" And Peter answered and said, "The Christ of God." But he warned them, and this is epitemeo, a rebuke. A rebuke is a warning. He warned them, he rebuked them, and instructed them. See, rebukes are instructive. See, some people don't like to be rebuked. They don't like to be told that they're wrong. They don't want to be corrected. Certainly not from the pulpit. They say, forget that. I go to church to feel good. I don't want the pastor jumping down my throat. Well, guess what? Rebukes are instructive. And your pastor is challenged to instruct you. That's why Second Timothy says, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So here we find the rebuke paired with instruction. He rebuked them or warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. He's putting them under an oath that they're no longer to proclaim him as the Christ. He's preparing them for the cross. Preparing himself for the cross, but preparing them for the cross. Don't tell anyone. Saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is a hinge event. This is where he very clearly knows that the cross is coming. Israel has rejected their king. Here comes the crucifixion. And with the rebuke and with the instruction, disciples are now forbidden to proclaim him as the Christ. So it's a hinge event in the life of Christ's ministry, and we will deal with that in some detail when we get to that point. 
Uh, still in Luke 9, it's a long chapter, uh, several verses down, down in verse 51. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 55. <laughs> he is going to Jerusalem. Like he told him he was going to be. And uh, they're on their way and some Samaritans aren't letting him in to buy food. And um, verse 52. See, if they were going northbound, they could buy food at triple prices. But going southbound towards Jerusalem, no deal. Can't buy nothing. We're not even talking to you, you Jews. You're going to Jerusalem. Forget it. And... Um, they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him, but they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. See, you're southbound? Forget it. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> These sons of thunder, you know. Tell you what, Jesus, you gave us these miracle powers. Let's just nuke this village right here. and Just blast it. Okay? Well, <laughs> he turned and rebuked them said you do not know what well in spite of that paragraph that parentheses there he turned and rebuked them that those sons of thunder all right he rebuked the fever notice in her point four her healing was accomplished that she might serve christ her healing was accomplished that she might serve christ and I went ahead and listed all the verses because it's, it's unmistakable. In the Matthew account, in the Mark account, in the Luke account, every single time the healing and the serving is in the very same verse. Her healing was accomplished that she might serve Christ. Matthew 8.15, Mark 1.31, Luke 4.39. In every single instance. Luke 4.39, standing over her, he rebuked the fever and it left her and she immediately got up and waited on them. Healing with immediate service. Mark 1.31, same verse. Same verse has the healing, same verse has the service. He came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand and the fever left her and she waited on them. She served them. Matthew 8.15 He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on them. Same verse. You know, and we get tunnel vision in our prayer request. We have, uh, we have a cold or something or a sick cat, and we want to pray. Um, you know, my, my pinky hurts. You know, heal me. And there are all kinds of prayers for health needs. And I'm not saying they're, they're unbiblical. But they are all too often totally divorced from any concept of service. Why do I want to be healed? Well, so I can play. So I can vacation. So I can have a good time. Or how about supply me the health necessary to be of service? Ah, now we're linking healing with service. See? And whatever health you supply is the health you supply for service. Where's that verse? Is it 3 John that says that your soul may prosper, that your health may prosper? It's in 3 John verse 2. 
Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. Nothing wrong with health prayers, but it says you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. See, so, you know, health prayer requests that are totally divorced from soul health or service and ministry are short-sighted. See, short-sighted. Her healing was accomplished that she might serve Christ. And, uh, you know, when we stop and consider how God uses health tests to instruct, how he uses physical infirmities to teach us about grace. Sometimes we don't get healed immediately. We don't get healed because we haven't learned the lessons that the sickness was supposed to teach us. Or our loved ones haven't learned the lessons that our sickness was supposed to teach them. See, Talking to John Eichmann on the phone yesterday, Linda's doing much better. But, you know, the nature of these tests are, it's not just Linda's test, it's John's test as well. Because he's her primary uh, caregiver in the home and helping her, uh, you know, to the bathroom and back and bathing and walking and fixing meals and laundry and everything. See? It's, a te- it's his test as well, not just her test. Her healing was accomplished that she might serve Christ. Now, when we go from the private to the public, point five, the healing of the crowds appeared indiscriminate and required no immediate service. The healing of the crowds, I'm talking about at the doorstep now, when all the city was coming, the healing of the crowds appeared indiscriminate. And required no immediate service. Didn't ask anything of them before, during, or after the miracle. Didn't expect anything of them before, during, or after the miracle. And this is, uh, we can read about this in Mark 1. Also, I think the Matthew account's pretty good at this too. But Mark 1, or Matthew 8. In verse 16, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word. Boom. Another rebuke. Get out of here. All of them gone. And he healed all who were ill, all who were ill. Gone. Didn't ask anything. They didn't stay and serve. They didn't have any, you know, they weren't taking up a collection plate or anything. You know, all these faith healers that go around these days, of course, for selling tickets and selling books and selling cures and miracles and all the rest. And I think we want to stop and recognize that. Mark chapter 1. We want to recognize that there must be a difference in the private ministry versus the public ministry. Because in private... In-house, we would say, could there be expectations? You bet there are expectations. Do we anticipate follow-up? Do we anticipate service? Absolutely. See, Uh, Mark chapter 1, 32 through 34. Do we anticipate that believers in a local uh, assembly are going to financially support that local assembly? Under principles of grace teaching? Absolutely. But... 
outside? No. Not at all. We give away printed materials, auto materials, never ask for a dime. See? All right, Mark chapter 1, 32 through 34. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons. Now, the use of many there doesn't contradict the all in Matthew. We think of many in terms of, you know, many but not all. No, all many represents here is just lots and lots and lots of them, see, it is not in any way a contrast. We think of it in the English as a contrast between many and all. No, it's, it's still many, and it's still all, according to Matthew chapter 8. He healed many who were ill with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak because they knew who he was. All right? Indiscriminate. Whoever was there at the doorstep, if they were sick, healed. If they were demoniac, gone. Indiscriminate. No questions asked. No money accepted. Freely you've received there you go. And uh, what is our attitude towards those outside? Are we indiscriminate? Are we generous? Are we giving and not expecting anything in return? Now, it is interesting that Matthew does identify this as fulfilling Old Testament prophecies. Matthew 8:17. He says this was to fulfill what was spoken of by Isaiah the prophet. And he cites Isaiah 53.4. Ultimately, the work of the cross is what heals our iniquities. But along the way, prior to the cross, Jesus Christ performed countless healings. And so it makes for an interesting Old Testament fulfillment. Because an Old Testament prophecy can have a partial fulfillment even while the ultimate fulfillment is still coming up. All right? Can I say that again? An Old Testament prophecy can have a partial fulfillment, even while the ultimate and final fulfillment of that prophecy is still pending. As in the point here, he healed our sicknesses, our iniquities. Well, okay, he does that. He's doing that here. He's doing that throughout the gospel ministry. But ultimately, he's still going to go to the cross. Okay? Likewise, in terms of uh, the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit. That happened at Pentecost, and the church received the Holy Spirit. But that's just a partial fulfillment, because ultimately, that's looking ahead to Second Advent, when the whole world gets the Holy Spirit, not just the church. So, uh, a lot of these are going to be important for us, not just this morning, but in future studies to examine the nature of Old Testament prophecy fulfillment. Fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, but also, in this instance, Jesus healed everybody, but in other instances, some were not healed. In other instances, some were not healed. In this instance, everybody was healed. But in other instances, some were not healed. And um, the uh, application of that brings up some, uh, some application for us. As we say, there are settings in which we want to have just an indiscriminate blessing. We want to be able to offer the gospel indiscriminately, Right? But then there are going to be other circumstances where we cannot offer indiscriminate blessings. Why not? 
Well, because quite frankly, we can't. It wouldn't be the will of God, and we can't do it anyway. You can't heal everybody. You can't pay everybody's rent. See? Could, can we pay the utilities of everybody in Austin? No. Does that mean we would never, ever pay anybody's utilities? See? Ah, now we start to recognize there is a time and there is a place. There are settings for indiscriminate blessings, but then there are settings where it, it's not, it does not get extended. And we have to show wisdom in these applications. Um, what people don't really think about when they're reading the book of Acts, I thought Warren Dow was just perfect in teaching this. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. This is uh, months after the, the uh, resurrection and ascension. Christ is in heaven. The disciples are now apostles, and they're now ministering in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 3. Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along. Now, lame from his mother's womb means he was born this way. And now how old is he? Don't know, but he's a man. All right, he's not a child, he's not a boy, he's a man. But he's been crippled his whole life. Uh, was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. And when he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, looking with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, Look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. Walk. See, some people, they want to come in here looking for silver and gold. They want us to pay their rent and utilities. What do we have that's better than silver and gold? How about the eternal truth of God's word? The price of which is far above rubies. No, they don't have time for that. Say, don't care about your Bible class. Don't want your teaching. Don't give a hoot about your God or your, or your church. I just want you to pay my rent. I want you to put gas in my van. I want blah, 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 blah. All right, well, see ya. Silver and gold I do not possess. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. With a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. He didn't need, even need physical therapy or any other thing. You know. And here's a man that's never walked his entire life. I mean, you look at Emma, and here she is trying to stand and, you know, tottering, and then, oh, not much more of that, and back down to, the, back down to sitting and crawling, and it's much safer if you're sitting and crawling, you know, at least where she is right now. Okay, imagine Brenda's doing the same thing, and... You know, that's just the way it works. So here's a man that's never done that. He's never walked. You can imagine, I mean, you would think it would take him a moment to maybe find a center of gravity and find a little bit of sense of balance in his ears and maybe kind of get this walking thing down. No. Such is the miracle that not only was his body healed, but he was supplied the ability with a leap. He stood upright and began to walk. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Imagine what kind of dance he must have done. It's probably like that old bald guy on the Fiesta Texas commercials. You know who I'm talking about? I was going to ask Cliff and Terry what kind of dance maneuvers those were at some point. Now, you can, you can preach this a whole lot of ways, but one thing to consider. Do you ever stop to think? This man was lame from birth. They were carrying him to the temple every single day. How many times did Jesus walk right by this guy? How come Jesus never healed him? Why was he still sick 
Why was he still lame on this day when Peter and John were going by? I mean, Christ went to that temple how many times? And he threw out money changers and he went there and he prayed and he taught. He was there when he was 12. He was there when he was an adult. He was there for at least three Passovers. Jesus could have healed this guy, but he didn't. It wasn't God's will. God's timing was for this man to stay lame until Peter and John showed up on this day. See, sometimes we have these prayer requests because we want to be healed right here, right now. I don't want any, any longer with this sickness. Well, it might not be time yet for you to be healed. It might be a few more years. Okay. And, you know, we had another instance back in um, Luke 4. Is Luke 4 the one I'm thinking of? We were doing um, oh yeah, yeah, there was the stories that he was telling in uh, in Nazareth that made him all mad. He said, uh, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, <laughs> but uh, Elijah was sent to none of them, only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. There, there were many widows in Israel, but Elijah was sent to that one. And there were all kinds of lepers during Elisha's day, but none of them was cleansed. Why not? Only Naaman the Syrian. See, why not? Was Elisha a big meanie for not healing all the rest of those lepers? Was God being cruel for not healing the rest of those lepers? Was Jesus being cruel for not healing this guy in Acts 4 or Acts 3? Uh, we talked about Paul and, Ka and that woman, that girl that kept harassing him every day. And Philippi was going to the prayer meeting and she kept harassing him day after day after day. She kept harassing him. And finally, he just had it up to here and said, forget it. And he turned and he cast out that demon. Well, why didn't he heal her any of those previous days? Why did he allow that little girl to be a, a demoniac day after day after day after day? See, can't heal everybody. Can't drive out every demon. See, we, we got this, this um, mentality in our thinking that um, the world ought to be a perfect place. <laughs> and if you have the power to heal, you should just heal everybody and there'll be no more sickness anywhere on the planet. Why not? I mean, if you have power to heal, then just heal all six billion people on this planet and we'll turn this world into a better place. And we'll cast out every demon from the planet. We'll seal every single one of them in the abyss. And this world will be a better place. Do you see the flaw in that line of thinking? You can't heal everybody. Because if you did, where would we be? The plan of God doesn't call for... There is a time when the plan of God calls for there to be no more sickness, no more death. But that's not here and now. All right. So the healings are the exception rather than the rule. What's the rule? The rule is sickness and death. The rule is fallen creatures in a fallen world. And, uh, you know, the, the modern Pentecostals think that you ought to just be able to heal anybody no matter what. It's not the will of God. God's will for this church age is for tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Finally, this event features <laughs> miscellaneous demon expulsions. I'm going to start calling them MDEs. Just miscellaneous demon expulsions. 
in the course of the Lord's ministry. I gave you 12 of them last week. Right? Didn't give you this one. Missed this one. In fact, there's another one coming up as well. There, and there's probably going to be several more like that that are just mentioned in passing. Oh, by the way, he cast out some demons while he was going to the store. You know? Going to fill up with gas. Going to go to the mall. It's just in passing. It's almost like not mentioning. It's like, you know, I was walking into the office, uh, went to fix coffee, uh, saw a cockroach on the floor, stomped on it. No big deal. It's really nothing to write home about. You don't really put it in your diary. You study, you know, and you're, you're, uh, you minister the Word of God. There's other things that go in your diary. You don't happen to mention that, oh, yeah, while I was fixing coffee this morning, before I got into my office to check email, I stomped on a cockroach. That's just a big deal, you know? It's almost like the casting out of these demons. It's not the sensationalism that people want to turn it into. All right. Miscellaneous, and there's going to be more of them. In fact, the next, uh, the next episode coming up, which we'll get into next week, the, uh, the first preaching tour of Galilee, uh, here the very next verse is after this. Um, 42 through 44, or maybe over, let me go back to Mark 1. Mark 1, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then he's up all night healing these sick guys, and then in the early morning it's still dark, he goes away to pray. He almost makes sure he starts every day with pray, uh, prayer even before the sun comes up. And uh, then uh, notice down in verse 39, he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Just miscellaneous demon expulsions. Just in the process Going to church, teaching Bible class, casting out demons, moving on to the next town. Miscellaneous demon expulsions. All right. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.